Today is November 3rd, 2006, and this is the Privacy Podcast. Welcome to the Privacy Podcast. I'm Aaron Titus, podcasting sort of live from my closet. Email me with privacy questions or comments, privacy at aarontitus.net, and visit me online, aarontitus.net slash privacy. This is show number seven, Privacy is a Social Movement. Yes, it's that magical election season again, where here in Washington, even your shoelace color can be contorted into a partisan issue. Right now, almost nothing escapes partisan caricature. But privacy is a strange beast. It seems to have standing on both sides of the political ideological divide. It's just as easy to envision a progressive activist arguing for privacy as one of those amorphous civil liberties as it is to envision a rural conservative, gun in hand, fighting for his right to be left alone. But for something we can all agree upon, privacy doesn't seem to get too much political traction. Legal changes are often merely a reflection of social change. For example, in the landmark case Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court upheld the civil rights of a minority. But incident to that decision, America was also experiencing a major social movement, the civil rights movement. Similar advances in environmental legislation have also been coincident with the environmental movement. The issue of privacy rights has many of the makings for a compelling social issue. In the instance of privacy rights, like the civil rights and environmental movements, number one, the government actively and objectively infringes upon personal liberties or rights. Number two, the private sector actively participates in the erosion of liberties and individual protections. Number three, a large class of individuals is objectively and adversely affected. And number four, the issue appeals to a broad spectrum of political ideologies. So why isn't privacy a social issue, like environmentalism? The answer is, in part, that unlike the civil rights and environmental movements, privacy lacks several vital components of a cohesive, successful social movement. For example, number one, our society at large lacks a clear, universal concept of privacy. Number two, privacy seems to compete with several sympathetic, reasonable, and weighty values, including security, child protection, and fighting terrorism. Number three, American jurisprudence lacks a single lucid theory of law on which to base assertions of privacy. And number four, privacy is difficult to enforce because it lacks a set of articulated objectives and outcomes. These Achilles heels of privacy have prevented a social movement from holding back a steady tide of liberty eroding legislation. As difficult as some of these shortcomings are, they are addressable. So tackling that first problem, defining privacy. Now scholars and advocates have made several successful attempts to define privacy. Instead of offering an academic definition of privacy, I would like you to imagine for a moment a few scenarios that demonstrate how a world without privacy would be different. Now these scenarios take place in a world where private companies can skim an individual's entire identity, including social security number, date of birth, credit history, location, etc., simply by scanning a government-issued real ID card. It's a world where the government contracts with massive data brokers to gather detailed intelligence about the location, movement patterns, purchase habits, credit history, and so on, for more than three-quarters of its population. It's a world where the National Security Administration actively eavesdrops on international phone calls. It's a world where personal information is stored in massive centralized government databases 
and ISPs are required by law to track the movements of all users across the Internet. Or in other words, it's a world not very much unlike the world we live in now. Scenario 1. Milk, magazine, and a personal profile. You purchase a gallon of milk and a magazine at Mom and Pop's Corner Grocery Store. The clerk says, We're trying to fight fraud. May I have your real ID card? And you produce it. Without explaining exactly what he's doing, he scans it. And instantly, your entire identity is downloaded to the Mom and Pop's database, along with the details of your purchase. Recognizing a possible revenue source, Mom and Pop's Inc. sells the information, including your purchase history and the location of their store, to a national data broker. Soon you start receiving solicitations in the mail from dairy and magazine companies. Later a company turns you down for employment when your profile indicates that you have a habit of purchasing magazines that do not conform with the CEO's political preference. The government also purchases this information and adds it to a total data awareness database that tracks your movements, purchase habits, financial data, and anything else that matters. This scenario brings up the dangers of the Real ID card which was recently passed by Congress. Now with any luck, this unfunded mandate will be stalled or halted in the halls of state capitals across the nation. In the current climate of terrorism and a strong executive branch, the government would like nothing more than to have a complete total data awareness database that tracks every meaningful aspect of every citizen's life. Obviously, they can't get warrants to collect information on every citizen but they can purchase the information from data brokers, which they do on a pretty regular basis. The problem is that much of the data is incomplete or incorrect, and that's the beauty of the Real ID card. It has a built-in mechanism to make sure that the government can have access to large amounts of extremely accurate information. The surveillance starts with the ID card itself, which contains a chip that actually contains personal identification numbers, credit information, location, social security number, you know, the whole enchilada. Then businesses and merchants skim that information each time you make a purchase, simply by waving the ID card in front of a scanner. Then they are able to enrich the data with purchase information, financial activity, location, purchase amount, and a bunch of other data. Finally, they sell the enriched data back to the data brokers, who in turn sell it to the government, and the circle of surveillance is complete. Scenario 2, Traffic Violation Driving home from work one day, you thoughtlessly cut someone off in traffic. What you don't realize is that the driver is actually a Department of Homeland Security employee with access to a lot of information. Angry at having been cut off, the DHS employee takes your license plate number and begins to investigate your profile. With a few simple keystrokes, he finds that you have a previous misdemeanor and one outstanding moving violation in Iowa several years old which you had forgotten about. He notifies law enforcement which arrive at your workplace with a warrant for your arrest. Scenario 3 Automated Surveillance Using a new multilingual voice recognition software, imagine the NSA is now able to monitor more than 85% of all overseas phone calls. A mother calls her son on foreign exchange to Egypt who is learning Arabic and studying for a degree in terrorism prevention. The son excitedly explains how much he has learned about the terrorist mindset and recites a few Quranic verses in Arabic. He also tells her about his favorite class, Foiled Terror Plots. Now the voice recognition software 
recognizes a large amount of suspicious activity and the presence of Arabic. As a precaution, the software looks up the phone number and automatically places the entire family on a terrorism watch list. Later, the family can't figure out why they experience hours of additional delays at airports, bus stations, and the DMV. Privacy is more than a mere convenience. It is a necessity. It's time for an honest evaluation and societal debate about what role privacy should play in our democracy. After all, from privacy flow many of the individual rights enshrined in our Constitution, such as freedom of speech, association, and choice. And this time, everybody needs to participate. Thanks for listening. Before I go, here's this episode's privacy tip. This tip comes from privacyrights.org. Take a minute to check your total profile for errors. Errors, some caused inadvertently, or others caused maliciously by a thief, can throw a wrench into your plans when applying for a credit card, purchasing a house, applying for a job, or much more. At the very least, take some time to check the following areas. Number one, credit history with a major credit bureau. Number two, medical information. Number three, bank account history. Four, insurance claims. Five, public records and six major search engines. I really appreciate listener feedback. Send email to privacy at erintitus.net or leave a note online, www.erintitus.net slash privacy. You can access this podcast at erintitus.net slash privacy, iTunes, or any other major podcast directory. Music today is They Don't Know by artist Jacques Grant on his album Rewired, available at podsafeaudio.com. Outlines for this or any other show are available upon request. Sort of live and sleep-deprived, from my closet, I'm Aaron Titus.